Well, good job of singing tonight and a great song, How Firm a Foundation. Praise the Lord for a firm foundation of our faith. I'd like you to take your Bibles tonight, if you'll please turn to Ephesians chapter 4. This evening we come to the 17th verse of chapter 4. And we actually have a division in the book of Ephesians that starts with this verse. And from Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17 all the way down through the last part of chapter 6 down to verse number 24. The theme is the same. And the theme is about the holiness of God's people and how that you and I as believers in Jesus Christ ought to live pure and holy lives. Now it's important for us to understand that God doesn't want us to be holy just simply as an end in itself. That's not God's design. We're not to be moral people because morality is good and best for us, although it is. We're not to be moral people and holy people simply because uh, it promotes our welfare and our happiness, because certainly it does that as well. But we're to be holy people in light of what God has done for us in sending Jesus Christ into the world to pay for our sins. So holiness, you might say, is actually the response to the unfathomable work of Jesus Christ in the redemption of our souls. And if the sacrificial work of Jesus does not bring us to holiness, I mean, if it doesn't encourage us to go to holiness, then I would have to say that we don't have the proper view of the precious blood of Christ and what Christ has done for us. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us in chapter 10, verse 29, Paul writes, "...of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace." And so as people of God, if we don't respond in holiness in our lives, then I think that we are guilty of trampling underfoot, as Paul says, the blood of Christ. So in view of what Christ has done for us then, the proper response for all of us is holiness. So this last section is all about that response from, uh, to God's wonderful redemption plan accomplished to the work of Christ. Now this evening we're going to look at verses uh, 17 through 19. And these verses give us a look at what we've been saved from. Paul brings up the subject of what we were before we were saved, and he gives us a chance to see what we look like in God's eyes. I mean, what were we before we were saved? Now, most of us, we we tend to think of ourselves pretty highly. We, We think that we're pretty good people and we're pretty much all right. But God shows a very, very much different picture. Paul shows us a different picture uh, in, in the book of Ephesians. So let's stand as we read the scriptures tonight. We're looking at chapter 4. We're considering the subject this evening. Take a good look at yourself, seeing yourself as God sees you. Verse number 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, Lord, that tonight you would help us to see what an awful pit that we've been brought out of, how deep that we were mired in sin, and how awful that our lives were before we met Jesus Christ. Help us to see ourselves as you saw us when you sent Jesus into the world to die for our sins. Blessing this message tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we read those verses, verses 17 through 19. I I think we would all have to say that they're very strongly reminiscent 
of something that we've already read in chapter 2. If you'll look back in your Bible there in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says this in the first verse, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others." In those verses, Paul laid out for us very clearly just how we have been devastated by the effects of the fall. And he tells us and and forces us to take a look at ourselves and to see what we were before Christ saved us. But we remember when we were studying those particular verses that Paul uh, changed the whole thing around. I mean, he gave us a whole different look. He changed the picture in verse number 4 of chapter 2 when he said, But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. And as we look at these verses in the fourth chapter that we're studying tonight, Paul also turns things around when he gets down to verse number 20. I don't want to get ahead of myself in the study, but the, the, the picture changes in verse 20 because Paul says there, "...but ye have not so learned Christ." But before we can ever get to that change in verse number 20, we have to deal with the condition that we were in that's so clearly laid out by Paul in these verses that we've just read. First of all tonight, I want to speak to you about the condition of depravity. And I don't suppose that there is a doctrine that's any more clearly taught in the Word of God than the depravity of man. The Scriptures are very clear about this, and yet... This is one of the doctrines that's so often denied by people today. I mean, the Bible is clear about this awful state that we're in, that we were radically altered by the fall of Adam. When Adam fell, all of his progeny fell with him. Adam's sin was passed on to us, so that the Bible says that as in Adam, all die. All of us have died in Adam. And before we're finished this evening with the study, we're going to see what that depravity has done to us. Actually, it's left us helpless. It's left us uh, dejected. We're defiled. It's left us in a state of total inability for us to come to God. Now, that... That is very clearly taught in the Scriptures, and yet there are many people who deny that man is actually totally depraved. And unfortunately, there are many Baptist people who say that they don't believe that man is totally depraved in his sins. Today, we're influenced by some of the periodicals that go around and and by some of what the fundamentalists are teaching, such as the sword of the Lord, who teaches that it's not, it teaches that we're not totally depraved, that the Bible doesn't actually say that, and they try to give us a totally different picture than what the Bible gives us of how a man is lost and totally depraved in sin. And so I think it's a shame that many Baptists believe that the fall of man only crippled man. It didn't really kill him. It didn't really kill him spiritually. It just maimed him. And, and he still retained some kind of natural ability to come to Christ. But that is not the picture that we get in the book of Ephesians. And we ought not ever settle in our minds some kind of a notion that a Christian is a person who has decided by himself that he's going to elevate his life to something that he wasn't before. And we're never to get the picture that somehow by our own ability we can decide that we're going to practice godly principles. Now the Bible teaches us that a person who's saved, who's born again, has had a radical transformation that's taken place in his life. That's why it calls it being born again. And it's so different. I mean, this transformation is so necessary and it's so different that it takes a complete unique operation 
of the Holy Spirit in a person's life to bring him to a place where he can believe the gospel of, uh, of Christ. And when that transformation and when that operation is complete, the Bible tells us that the believer in Christ actually becomes a new creature in Christ. That means he's changed. I mean, he's completely different than he was before. Before he had no spiritual life at all. But now in Christ, he's been made alive. So he's different. And that's what Paul is emphasizing. We're nothing. We were nothing. And that's the thrust of verses 17 through 19. Now he says in verse number 17, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And you'll notice there the word other. That's a very important word here because it denotes a difference between the the Gentiles who are lost and Gentiles who are saved. And what Paul is saying is you're not that way any longer. Something has happened to you. You're not what you were before. And then he goes on and he explains to us the extent of this depravity. Now I want you to notice first about the extent of our condition of depravity is that man is depraved in mind. He's emotionally depraved, he's intellectually depraved, his conscience is depraved, his will is depraved, his reasoning, his understanding, his affection. Everything that has to do with the mind of man has been affected by the cancer of sin. And that's why Paul says here that the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. He says in verse 17, and he's showing us there that the entire mind, the volition, the will, our emotions, everything that's in man has been affected by the fall of Adam. Now, Paul calls it vanity, and we might better understand that word as futility. It's emptiness, and the only life that could could ever emanate from the mind of man is one of futility and emptiness. And yet, it's out of that mind that many believe that there's a seed of faith that can germinate, and somehow that that can grow into a life in Christ. Now, friends, you've heard me preach it many times before. There is no such thing as a seed of faith in man. And if there were a seed in faith in man, it lies in poisoned soil. It lies in a soil that will never allow it to germinate into spiritual life. Man is hopeless, utterly hopeless, unless God does something with him first. And so he's in a a state of total depravity, total inability, so that he has absolutely no desire at all to have anything to do with God. Now, I think it's pure foolishness, and I think the Bible teaches it's pure, pure foolishness and totally unscriptural to teach that a person has the ability to believe until the Holy Spirit comes and changes his disposition, until the Holy Spirit regenerates that person and gives him the faith necessary to come to Christ, then he'll never believe. His life is emptiness and futility, and, and that kind of a life, such as we are, will never allow us to believe in Christ then also we can say that man is depraved in actions. Now, Paul's warning here in verse 17 is that these that are saved, these regenerated Ephesians, should no longer walk as other Gentiles walk. And so that means their actions, their manner of life, everything that they do is different than it was before. And so in verse 19, he says, the Gentiles have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness and greediness. Well, you'd only have to do a little bit of study to find out just how depraved and and how wicked that these ancient cultures really were. Ephesus was a city that was filled with vice and corruption. Religion itself was was corrupt. Temples in that day were filled with, with prostitutes. In the temple of Diana, which was one of the goddesses of fertility, homosexuality was practiced. 
every deviant sexual act that you could possibly imagine, that, that took place among these Ephesian, Christ, or Ephesian uh, uh, Gentile people. And, and the, all of the ancient cultures were pretty much the same. But folks, we needn't think that the depravity of man was confined to those ancient cultures and that somehow through the ages, man has gotten a little bit better. He's, he's getting better. He's spiritually better than he was before. We can look at our own culture and we see that every day we're, we're getting closer and closer to the very pit of hell itself. And if the Holy Spirit wasn't restraining some of the evil that goes on in the world today, people would act out to the very depths of their depravity. People aren't getting better. It only gets worse. So this isn't a pretty picture. And again, I say it's utter foolishness to think that a man could ever change his mind living in this kind of condition without some divine influence, without total divine influence, actually. But is that what you hear today? That's not the preaching that to hear. What you hear today is that man is basically good. All that we need to do is to appeal to his better instincts. Somehow man will be able to correct himself and get rid of his evil ways. That's not the Bible's picture. You take a good look at yourself, and when you see yourself as God sees you, you see that there's none that doeth good, no, not one. All of us have gone out of the way. None seek after God. So that's man's condition, and I couldn't even give you enough words. I I couldn't even explain to you just how dark and bleak the picture really is. It's a condition of depravity. And it's depravity that's so radical and so deep that men simply can't escape it. Supernatural divine intervention is what's required. And folks, that kind of intervention doesn't mean that man is able to cooperate with it in some way. That it only works if man can do something himself. That's not the picture that we have. But let's go on because there's more here. We're in a condition of depravity, but also I need to speak of the cause of deception. Why is it that man is the way that he is? Well, the short answer, of course, is because of the fall. As I've said, Adam's sin was passed down to all of us, passed down to his progeny. And and the Bible teaches that we did become sinners because of the fall of Adam. But we also understand that Adam was not created that way. Adam wasn't created as a fallen creature. Adam chose to sin. And and so this condition that we're in is, although it's our natural condition now, originally it was unnatural for us to have sin. Now look at verse number 18. It says, Having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So here he says, men are alienated from God. But of course... It wasn't always that way because one time Adam walked in innocence. One time God had fellowship with Adam. And the Bible says in the cool of the day, he searched for Adam. He talked with Adam. He communed with Adam. But that doesn't go on any longer. It's not that way any longer because now what we have is unnatural darkness. It's unnatural darkness. Now, men are acting wrongly because their thinking is completely messed up. Now, the worst effect of the fall was actually centered in man's understanding. Once we walked in the sunshine of God's love, we had fellowship with God. We walked with him, as I said, as Adam did. But today we walk in darkness because God is absent from us. God has no fellowship with us, so we live in the dark. And over and over, the scriptures make this clear that the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming into people is light shining into the darkness. Matthew recites the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, and he says that when Christ came, the people which sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Paul seals it up in 
the difference between light and darkness forever with this statement. He says, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what we see here is that man's understanding is darkened. He has blinders on when it comes to spiritual things. When I lived in Kentucky, one of the things that we would do about every three or four years or so, we'd make a trip down to southern Kentucky to Mammoth Cave. And Mammoth Cave is the, is the longest uh, cave system in the world. And when we would go down into Mammoth Cave, one of the things that they always did, I mean, if you've ever been in caves, they usually do things like this. They shut out all the lights. They turn out all the lights. And the guide will sit there and he'll say, now put your hand in front of your face. Wave your hand in front of your face. Can you see that? No. It's dark. I mean, you can't, you can't see it at all. I mean, you can't even see anything at all. But then that guide would say something interesting. He'd say, your eyes will never adjust to this darkness. It will never adjust to this dark. You'll never be able to see. No matter how long you stay down here with these lights off, you will never be able to see. Now, I don't care how dark it is outside or how dark it might be in your house. There's always a little bit of light for you to be able to see. I mean, you go into your bedroom at night with all the lights out, and you stand after you stub your toe three times, but you stand there and, and you look around, and pretty soon your eyes start to adjust to the dark. You can't see well, but you can see a little bit. Now, do you know that that is the picture that many people are giving us, many preachers are giving us of man's spiritual condition? Yes, he's in the dark, but he can see a little bit. And if he wants to, if he so chooses, he can reach out and touch God. That's not the picture Paul is giving us here. He's giving us a mammoth cave experience. And he says, it doesn't matter how long it takes, you're never going to adjust to this darkness. You'll never be able to see. You'll never be able to see beyond the darkness. And what's more, what makes it even worse, is he teaches that that even if we could see beyond the darkness, we don't want to. We don't want to see beyond darkness. Here's what Jesus said in John. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. So do you see yourself as God sees you? It's not the picture that most people see. It's not what most preachers are preaching. It's total darkness. And Paul teaches us and shows us that there's darkness, not because it's a natural thing, it's an unnatural thing. Someone has blinded us. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, "...in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them." Now, we know that the God of this world is Satan, and there's no spirit, there was no spiritual darkness until he deceived Adam, and Adam fell. So the pale of darkness is not a natural phenomenon. It didn't come on us in a natural way. It came because of sin. Now, there's unnatural darkness, but that translates into something else. The second thing is, there's natural hardness. There is a natural hardness. Now, you'll notice in verse number 18, here Paul says, because of the blindness of their heart. The word blindness is actually translated from a word that means a stone. And originally, it referred to marble, a very hard stone. It was also a medical term that referred to something that was callous. I mean, I think all of us know what when something is callous, when you, when you get a blister on your foot and the skin grows back, it comes back hard, doesn't it? And if you blister it again, it grows back and it's a little bit harder. Calloused hands are hands that have been blistered many times and the skin has grown back hard. That's one of the meanings of this word. 
And then, being a medical word, it also re, uh, applied to, uh, to your joints, like when you get arthritis. So it's a medical condition. So when you take that word and you apply it to the eyes, it gets translated as blindness. And that's the word that we have in the King James Version. Now, it's certainly true. I think we can understand that uh, a blinded eye, spiritually blinded eyes, could never see God. But the implication of this word is that when you use the word blindness, it's like something that you can't help. In other words, if you can't see because you're blind, that's not your fault. You're just blind, so you can't see. And so the word blindness really doesn't convey what Paul actually means here. So this word is actually better understood by the word hardness. And it means that it actually means that as well. So this verse would then read, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Now you see, when you look at it that way, it takes on a different meaning because now we have a condition of, of willful hardness. That's what man wants. He, he, he's in willful hardness. Now, the darkness, it was brought upon us unnaturally. But this hardness and resistance that we have to God has actually become natural to us now. It's innate in man. And so man does exactly what he wants to do. Now, this is Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1. I want you to turn to Romans 1 for just a moment. And in chapter 1, Paul discusses this inexcusable condition of the heathen. And he writes in chapter 1, verse number 18, we'll start there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Now what Paul is telling us here is that God has revealed himself through nature, so it's impossible for us to look at nature and not understand that there, there is a higher power involved. There, there's a God who's created all this. And yet man, even though God has given him that knowledge that there is a God, man has changed the glory of God into something else. He's changed it into something that he could make for himself. So he took idols, and here he tells us that he served the creature rather than the creator. So he bowed down to these images and things that he makes with his own hands rather than to bow down to the God who created those things. Now, this is an interesting point here because what Paul is saying is that man has willfully changed God's revelation. Now, what he did was he suppressed the revelation. He suppressed this knowledge of the creator. And why does he do it? Because he knows that if there's a creator who's greater than he is then he must be an obligation to that creator. And so rather than put himself under the obligation of the creator, he rather changes the entire revelation. He alters his thinking. So he changes God's revelation and he makes his own gods. You know, someone asked me a few weeks ago in, in, uh, in our forum class, why do we have other religions? I mean, why, doesn't, why don't people just all choose Christianity? I mean, to us, we, we couldn't understand why anybody wouldn't want to be a Christian. Why don't people just choose Christianity? And the answer is that man is selfish. And he'll always be selfish. 
And so, and so rather than to submit himself to the sovereign God who made him, he makes God in his own image and makes God exactly what he wants him to be. And that's really the basis of all false religions. It's making God what I want him to be. So whenever somebody begins to teach that man has a part of his salvation, what is it? That's his way of controlling God. And so when a preacher or a seminary professor gets up and he says that salvation has to be a cooperative effort between God and man, then he's saying, I'm not content to let God do it all. I have to have a part in this. I have to contribute something. And most of them will say, well, my contribution is my faith. But faith is not your contribution. Faith is also the gift of God. So this is man's natural and willful hardness. Even when God's revealed to him, he chooses rather to harden his heart, to even change the revelation of God, rather than to believe the truth of God's word. He's in a darkened condition. But that's not all, because we still have yet another cause of deception that Paul mentions here. And the third one is common ignorance. Verse 18 says that the Gentiles, and of course by extension that means all of us, The Gentiles were alienated from God because of the ignorance that's in them. Well, that ignorance is not peculiar to that particular subset of people. All of us are ignorant. Ignorance is common when it comes to spiritual matters. The problem is we just don't want to admit it. In fact, uh, if you want to get yourself in trouble, just go around telling people that they're ignorant. That'll get you in trouble real quick. No, we, we pride ourselves on our knowledge and, and what things that we know. And, you know, if Paul wanted to get himself in trouble, all he had to do was go tell the Greeks and Romans, you fellows are ignorant. I mean, here are the people that were the leaders of the, uh, 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 philosophy, the Greeks and the Romans. When Paul visited Athens, Luke records, then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 21 says, For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. So here we have people who pride themselves in their intellect and how that they can philosophize, how they can try to understand the world that's around them and even make up something about what they think about God. So you have Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. All of them are products of Greek philosophy, Greek and Roman philosophy. But where did their philosophy lead them? Now, they're great intellectual people, but where did philosophy and the wisdom of the world lead them? Well, many of the philosophers were atheists. Some of them were pantheists. Some of them believed that death was an annihilation. Some believe in reincarnation, the transmigration of the soul. So it was nothing but ignorance when it comes to the spiritual man. Now, I like the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones puts this when he speaks about the plight of man who's trying to follow his own wisdom. And he says this. He says, The great philosopher writes his book on why I am not a Christian, and he gives you the impression that his unbelief is the outcome of his powerful intellect. But go and listen to the man on the street corner who says, I am not a Christian, and he will give you exactly the same reasons. There's no difference at all. It's all played out. He says it's bunkum, it's out of date. His terminology is slightly different, but the essential argument is precisely the same. So, folks, we might pride ourselves in our intellectualism, but God says we're all ignorant. When it comes to spiritual things, all of us are ignorant. The natural man is ignorant of God's character. We know nothing about God's attributes. We don't know anything about God's sovereignty. 
Man is totally ignorant when it comes to spiritual things. And that's why Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And yet with that verse, we do have it up there, don't we? What happened to it? Can you give me that verse right quick? Boy, you're way behind. Keep going there. Somebody throw a rock at him. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. There we go. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. And yet with that verse that we have right there, the natural man cannot... Can you read? Read it with me. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. And yet we have people, despite what this verse says about the ignorance of man, when the Bible says that we can't know these things, and yet there's preachers say, yes, a man really can know God. He actually can come to Christ before the Holy Spirit begins to grip him and to change his heart, that the change of the heart is not necessary before a person can be saved. I read it this week in one of our Baptist papers. A change of your heart is not necessary in order for you to be saved, not prior to being saved. So you just decide all of a sudden, even though that verse says, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, yet they say, oh yes, the natural man can receive the things of the Spirit of God. That's why he can be saved without supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit working on his heart first. That's wrong. And so they tell us, well, the Holy Spirit then has not done anything peculiar in any particular person's heart. The Holy Spirit works on all people the same way, which is to lead us to believe, anybody who can think about this, is that the Holy Spirit has done nothing at all. He's left us all in exactly the same shape. And the thing that makes the difference of whether we're Christians or not or get saved is not the Holy Spirit, it's you and your decision. That's not what that verse says. So it, if, if that's true, I mean, if you can come to Christ without, without a supernatural change taking place, then you inevitably, inevitably have to come to the same conclusion of a man by the name of Charles Finney. And in fact, Charles Finney is a man that these people love to quote. Charles Finney had a sermon entitled, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. And he denied the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He denied that Christ died for anything more than an ideal. He believed that Christ did not die for any person individually or any particular person. And he denied original sin and the sovereignty of God. And yet, do you know who Charles Finney was? Read a little history and you'll find out that Charles Finney was the forerunner of Billy Sunday and John R. Rice. And yet, those men, they call those men, those fundamentalists call those men theologians. Folks, that's ignorance. And there's sorrow to be had over Baptist theology today when we consider that Baptist people believe things like that. I mean, that's the ignorance of the Gentiles who walk in the vanity of their minds. So when you see yourself as God sees you, you're never going to come to the same conclusion as the fundamental preachers today. Folks, there's nothing wrong with the fundamentals of the faith. Absolutely nothing wrong with the fundamentals of the faith. But there's something seriously wrong with fundamentalism. And that is we've gone away from what Baptists have taught. So as Baptists, what we need to do is stick with the preaching of Paul and not the preaching of warmed-over Pelagianism. 
And if you don't understand that term, you don't need to. Just go pick up any of the Baptist papers that will be written all over them. Then you'll understand what it is. So you, you may wonder, why do I spend so much time talking about things like this? It's because there's need for us to recover our Baptist theology. I mean, when I say the word Baptist, why can't I just say Baptist and everybody automatically understands that I'm talking about historical Baptists, what Baptists have always believed? I can't do that anymore. Because when I say the name Baptist, I have to explain that we're really not Methodist. <laughs> we're Baptist, not Methodist. And yet our theology today is Methodist. I don't understand that. So I have to deal with these kinds of things because, folks, these are theological battlegrounds. The lines are drawn, and we've got to decide whose side we're going to be on. Do we want the truth or not? Well, let me finish the sermon tonight with point number three, and this just nails it down again, the consequences of deviance. So we have the condition of depravity. We have the cause of deception. Now, thirdly, we have the consequences of deviance. So what has this done to us? What has depravity done And what is the deception produced in men? Well, Paul gives it to us. First of all, there's a loss of sensitivity. Verse 19 says, who being past feeling. What does that mean? Well, it means that they become so wicked and so used to their sins that they no longer feel any guilt about it. They're so hardened that they have become insensitive to the outward call of the gospel of Christ. Now, here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. A conscience seared with a hot iron. What does that mean? Well, it's the same thing as Paul says when he says past feeling. It's like when a nerve is cauterized. When you cauterize a nerve, there's no more feeling in it. Now, once again, I want you to put yourself in the picture. What's Paul trying to show us? See yourself as God sees you. How will a person ever come to Christ when he's lost all sensitivity to sin? He has no idea what sin does to him, and he has no idea that sin is against God. So if your sensitivity to sin is completely deadened, how would you ever be convinced that you're a sinner condemned by the wrath of God? Now, do you see what I'm saying? Over and over again, the teaching of Scripture, especially right here in the book of Ephesians, is the total helplessness of man. This is not a picture of man drowning and somebody throwing a life preserver and he's out there trying to grab the rope so he can be saved. That's not the picture, and yet that's what people have us believe. The picture is the man on the bottom of the ocean floor, dead, drowned. He can't move. He can't do anything. And God has to reach down and bring him up out of that condition. And thank God that's what he did for me. He saw me. He reached down and he touched me. And he brought me to life in order that I could believe in him. And that's why I don't preach 20-minute sermons and 45-minute invitations. Because I can't convince people. Just like I said Sunday, that's the Holy Spirit's job. I cannot convince people to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit has to do it. So we can plead and plead and plead for people to run down the aisles. We can do it all that we want. We can tell them, if you'll come down here, you can receive something. But they'll never receive something if God's not giving something. God has to be the one who has the lead in this. So the only thing that a person could ever plead before God is one thing. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And yet, do you know that our pulpits are filled with preaching that says that God is obligated to us? God must give me the gospel. God must be fair to me so that I can have my chance to be saved. 
that kind of preaching is the product of the vanity of the mind. It's a product of gross ignorance of God's word, of its character, and everything about God. So the result of depravity is the complete loss of sensitivity towards sin. Jeremiah put it this way. He wrote, Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? Nay, they were not at all ashamed. Neither could they blush. People don't blush about sin. They don't care about sin. Paul says it's because they're alienated from God through the ignorance that's in them. Now, the final consequence of deviance is a discovery of sensuality. Now, one thing that you always find out when, when somebody changes from one thing to another, when something happens to him, he doesn't just stay neutral. There's never a void there. Something else is going to take over. And so when he loses his sensitivity to sin, he discovers something else. He discovers a new sensuality. In verse 19, it says, "...who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness." Now, Paul uses the word lasciviousness. Webster calls this irregular indulgence of animal desires. Now, further, Paul says, to work uncleanness with greediness. And so, through the fall, the desire for God was replaced with something else. It was replaced with the desires of the natural senses. I don't really have to explain that to anybody, I don't think. Turn on the TV, watch a movie, read a magazine, even in the newspaper, and you'll find out... What Paul, exactly what Paul's talking about. Now, maybe today we don't have temple prostitutes. In America, we don't have temple prostitutes like they had at Ephesus. But friends, we have as much deviance as they had and more, and just different forms. So this is the life that Paul says, you're not to be a part of this. Don't walk as other Gentiles walk. Now, let me finish by giving this quote from one author. He said, he is describing pagan life as a whole. Though you may in your spirit of fear be merely paddling on the edge of the ocean, do not forget that you are in the ocean and that you're paddling in the same sea others are swimming and shrink and sinking in. The point is that you should not even want to paddle with them. That is the life. Out of it, says Paul. Keep your feet dry and clean and have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with the unfruitful works of darkness. Do you see yourself as God sees you? Do you know what God saved you from? Here it is in chapter 2, and Paul says it in another way. He keeps hammering us with this. The total inability of man that so many people deny, he keeps telling us over and over about it. In Ephesians 2, verse 12, he said that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Listen, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Let me quote to you my earlier statement. It's important that we understand that God doesn't want us to be holy as an end in itself. We're not to be moral simply because morality is good and best for us. We're not to be moral simply because it promotes our welfare and happiness. We're to be holy in the light of what God has done for us in sending Christ into the world to die for our sins. That's why we want to be holy. Take a good look at yourself, and what do you see? You're going to see a depraved sinner saved by the grace of God, and that's the only way anybody will ever be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight, and I ask you, Lord, to help us to understand these concepts better. Help us to see, Lord, exactly what Paul has so clearly laid out before us tonight, that we are totally depraved. We were totally depraved in our sins, and we could not come to you. It took a 
the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to change our mind about sin and self and about you. And through that change of mind, you've given us the faith that we can believe in you. That's the only way that salvation ever comes. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us. Bless your people tonight in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.